On today's episode of the Savage Leader Podcast, I had an inspiring conversation with musician Wes Gear. Wes was a founding member of the band Head P.E. and also played guitar with the metal band Korn. He shared his inspiring story about addiction. He talked about what that experience was like and how he really uncovered and understood the power of music, which led him to start a fantastic organization called Rock to Recovery, which was started to help people battling addiction and mental illness across the globe. I hope you enjoy today's episode with Wes. Wes, thanks for coming on today. Hey, thanks for having me. Always an honor and a privilege. There's so many different interesting aspects of your life and your career. And I always would love to go back to the beginning in terms of Little Wes and what kind of stuff were you interested in back then? It was a terrifying time. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Oh, man. You know, I had a great childhood. There was a lot of good stuff. It was also scary. My parents divorced. I, I don't blame that. You know, it definitely impacted who I, who I am, but, uh, which I didn't find that out till later. But, you know, moving around a lot being really insecure, being in new schools, having a beautiful life. I mean, childhood, it's kind of scary, isn't it? That was kind of my experience. But I, I was lucky to be around music and have, I have a um, musical family. My grandfather played, he was a musical director at a church in Massachusetts, so very traditional, exposed to a lot of beautiful classical music. He actually played the carillon, which most people don't know what it is. It's a bell tower, which sometimes when you're walking around, you'll hear bells, but those are usually pre-recorded bells or it's just a couple bells. But the carillon is every note of the piano is a bell. And the piano has 88 keys from very low to very high. And he was famous for transposing classical pieces and putting them on the carillon. And so he had to push levers that almost look like kind of like some sort of wood peg you'd see to tie off a rope on a sailing vessel. And so they're very heavy. And so it's not easy to do. And he would do these performances on what was called the Boston Common, which in back East terminology, it's like a little man-made pond is the common, right? It's like a little park with a little man-made pond. So it was cool that those elements and my mom's good cooking, you know, there's many amazing elements, you know, I have a very loving family, but uh, also scary just to live life. Yeah. Childhood can be, uh, can be interesting for sure. And affects us in so many ways. What was like, obviously you're around a musical family and great example of your grandfather. What was your just first engagement and first foray in actually playing music? I remember they came to our school, elementary school, and they did like an assembly where people played different instruments and like, you can play this one or you can play this one, you know what I mean? And, uh, Somehow I picked the trumpet. I liked, I remember I liked the trombone because the guy, the trombone has like a slide. So as opposed to being like an instrument, like a trumpet where basically you hit the note and that's the note, the trombone, you can kind of slide between notes. So the guy was like, I was like, whoa, that one is cool. It makes some cool sounds. But somehow I ended up on the trumpet. But that's when my work ethic came in, which for most of my life, until I got sober, I did not have a work ethic. And so I was playing trumpet, but not learning the parts. And I remember doing recitals and being like, I'm just going to pretend that I'm playing and I'm not. So, but that was my first foray, as you put it into music and stuff like that. So what led you to guitar? Obviously that seems to be like the the sexy choice for people. I mean, I, I grew up playing piano and became a little bit disinterested in that and would have loved to have probably started in guitar earlier, but 
how did you get playing guitar? I always cite this one time, and I was, must have been under the age of 10, probably between 5 and 10, and my brother played Smoke on the Water. And Smoke on the Water has what they call a flat five on it. It goes dun, dun, na, na. So it had that rock and roll sound I hadn't really heard. It's played in the interval of fourth, so it's very kind of edgy and cutting. And I remember going, that sounds cool. A little cooler than classical. Of course, I love classical and these days and see it for its genius, certainly. But that stuck with me. So when I finally heard rock music, Van Halen, you know, to Dead Kennedys, Sex Pistols, Iron Maiden, you know, Sticks, Foreigner, all the stuff, Rush. I was always drawn to the guitar and I was like, I want to learn how to make these sounds. Oh, Randy Rhodes with Ozzy Osbourne. That was a big one. They were doing like the hammer-ons, which are basically arpeggios in a very legato, meaning smooth way. And those, they sound kind of classical. So that probably part of the reason it grabbed my ear. Yeah, it's interesting is so many people have passions for, you know, my kids in sports and want to be pro athletes or kids pick up a guitar and want to be a professional musician. When did you realize that that was actually a viable path for you in terms of just making a life and career out of it? Great question. I think the use of your words are interesting because if I answer it really accurately, viable path, I don't think that is a word I would use. It was uh, something I was going to do, win or lose, you know, success or fail. And this question comes up a lot with... Uh, People ask, like, you know, well, at least from my perspective as a musician, like, you know, how did you get into it or what drove you to do it? And and I always say, I didn't have a choice. I just could not not play guitar. I was obsessed. And, you know, in this sense, it's interesting. And I don't know if it's like attached to an ADD thing, you know, anything I didn't care about, I just couldn't do, wouldn't do, no ethic. Guitar. I was obsessed. I played for hours and hours and hours. And I, I can't comment on being a Kobe Bryant because I'm not Kobe Bryant. But when you hear stories of guys like that who are at the gym earlier than everybody else, you know what I mean? Nobody's forcing them to do that. They're already pros. But the point is, it's like they just, I think people in these kind of stories, it's, 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 a, it's a passion that is unwavering and undeniable. So while I had a lot of friends that loved to play guitars around the neighborhood who had talents and skills, I just played more than them. And I tried harder than them and because I loved doing it. I mean, same thing, right? Kobe and the likes of Kobe got to the gym earlier. You, you outplayed them. You outworked them. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, sometimes I, who knows? I'm hypothesizing, but maybe with some athletes, it's like, oh, I don't want to go to the gym at 5 a.m. today. It was never like that for me in the guitar. It was always just like, I can't wait to play guitar. You know, and I started smoking a lot of weed in high school, being an insecure loner, and I would just get stoned out of my brain. Well, I shouldn't even say that because the weed was a lot less powerful as compared to today. But I would, for a 15 year old, I was very stoned playing guitar for four hours, eight hours a day. You know, I'd love to get on that path, but just, you know, talk to me more about just that whole music career and, you know, your first band and obviously, you know, first real successful band had PE, but just how do you take that from just being a real expert in terms of guitar playing to making really a career out of it? Yeah. You know, every band's different and bands are kind of like, you know, they're like a business in the sense that like any business that comes together when you're launching, let's say the business, obviously businesses grow and add employees, but a band like 
who's the leader, who's writing the most, Kurt Cobain in Nirvana. Clearly, he's coming in with guitar parts and vocal lines. Pretty much the song in a technical sense is done and the guys add bass and guitar, right? So there's all versions of that, right? So for me, in my experience, I was always kind of a leader with my bands, you know, like coming in with an artistic direction. It's tough to keep members together. It's tough to be on the same page. Uh, you have egos and I want to do my song. I want to do my song or, you know, somebody's on restriction when you're in high school or whatever, you know, you're trying lineups and ideas and you're learning. And um, I was just unrelenting. I had a, you know, my first band was, we didn't have a singer and we were horrible, but we were for our age, pretty good on our instruments, but it didn't go anywhere. Just a garage band. And then I remember the, almost giving up on music. And then my former bass player, who was just a monster of a talent, he still is, said, come play with me and this, this guy, Greg. And I listened to the music and I was like, ah, and he goes, we got a show at the Whiskey Go-Go, world famous club in LA. And this is, you know, mid eighties probably, or late eighties probably. And I did it and it got me on stage and that kind of lit my fire. Like, oh man, I got to keep doing this. This is cool. And so I played with a band I didn't really like for a while. And I tried to it was his band, but I tried to, you know, infuse my style. And then it just even didn't work even more. We were all friends, but we just split up. And then I started forming a new band, which became Head PE. Well, we were Head at first, pulled members from, you know, took my drummer from that band and then grabbed a couple friends over here and saw guys in another band. And we made up a lineup. You know, we didn't know what direction we were going at first. We just wanted to make music together. So it took a while to find out our our direction and and what was going to be the best version of us together making music and give us the best chance to succeed. But you asked about Viable. Well, in the early days of that band, I remember thinking, am I an idiot? I'm now in my mid-20s. I've had all these crappy bands. None of them are going anywhere. Should I just give this up? But then, as the story goes, uh, the singer and I did way too many mushrooms and went to a concert when we were trying to figure out what direction and we saw Beastie Boys, Cypress Hill, Rage Against the Machine. And we're like, that's it. We love rock. We love gangster, evil sounding rap. And we love the party vibe of the Beastie Boys, kind of that hyped up hip hop. We're going to, and Rage Against the Machine was just like, we're going to combine this stuff. And that gave us our direction for which way to go. And then after that, people started coming to clubs and we could see that what we were doing was really working. So then when the record companies start coming, you're like, okay. I mean, you know, this is like a business-based podcast. You know, you got to make the cookies and go out and see if people like your cookies. There's so many people who worry so much about the business and the structure and the funding and the. It's like, wait, wait, do do anybody even want your idea? And the beautiful thing we get in the bands in those days, especially, is that we get to go play shows and play shows and play shows. And we used to pass out flyers, right? That's how long ago it was. Everywhere. And then, I mean, everywhere, every night there was a club or something going on. We were there with flyers for our next show. And then I remember there came a point where we kind of started slacking on the flyer output and we were driving up to one of our clubs to play. And we're like, wonder if anybody's going to be here, dude. Is anybody be here? And we pulled up and there was a line, get chills. There's a line down the street and it was a line and it wasn't our friends. It was people we didn't know. And that's when we knew people liked our cookies. And this, to answer your question, looked like it could be a viable band. 
That's awesome. It's so inspiring on so many levels, but but I appreciate the connection back to business in terms of seeing if people like your cookies and doing that research. But I mean, gosh, is a, it's one thing to put a product out in the world that people go, ah, I don't, I don't, really, I don't need that piece of software, but to get up there on stage and just be vulnerable. Here's this new genre of music. It sounds like even, you know, I think you called it uh, G punk, but putting yourself out there, like how do you go about doing that in, in, in a really vulnerable way? I just think you don't have a choice, you know, and it's funny because I love my guys in my first band in head, but I even think, you know, with time stories change, but, but, you know, the singer and I were, we told you our direction, but you know, our drummer wasn't feeling it. Our bass player was like, he's from, was from England. He's like, I don't want to be in some sort of hip hop rock band. Keep in mind, nobody had really done this at the time. It was before Limp Bizkit. It was, you know, before uh, a lot of these bands. And, you know, you have to stay convicted and persevere. It's who I am. I'm, I, you know, when I want something, I'm just going to go. I'm going to take chances because I'm happy in that place. I'm actually happy. I get scared as fuck. I want to quit. Sometimes I want to cry. But I'm happy in that place of like, this is what I want to do. Let me go try it. Uh, and, uh, you know, I don't believe in failure. It's kind of like a lot. Now you can see I've got a few gray hairs. I'm not a spring chicken anymore. Now, a lot of times I think about like, if I'm on my deathbed, what am I going to regret? What will I wish I did different? And, and it's stuff like that's why I started a new band at my ripe old age, because if I was to die tomorrow, I'd be bummed I didn't make any more music. Well, yeah, what if it's a waste of time? And uh, Well, fine. I'll know that at least I'll know I won't be on my deathbed going, God, I, I wish I tried this and tried that, you know? Yeah, I love that. Well, it's for the right reasons, right? It's, it's for you and your own personal gratification, it sounds like. Yeah, and I think that's key too, right? We have to do it when it's in our heart and, and it ties in all those anecdotes we hear of, you know, if you love what you do, you'd never work another day in your life, et cetera, et cetera. The image I have is of you pulling up and seeing this line around the corner. And the word I think about is validation, you know, and I, I'm just curious, just when you talked about getting chilled, like what was that like in terms of just pulling up and blood, sweat and tears, you're forging this new type of music, new genre of music. And you see people just come out in droves that are not your friends. Uh, it's the greatest feeling. And, you know, I don't know what it's like in other realms of business and creativity because, you know, what's it like for Elon Musk who bought Tesla and now Teslas are everywhere. You know, for me, it was like, there's something about getting to play for people. You, you do quantify like, hey, we've got success. People are into our art so much that so many people show up. But it's also kind of like the next experience after that, which is we get to now experience this music with these people. And that as a musician, for me as a songwriter, when I'm writing a song, I'm thinking about like, what's it going to feel like? I do it for me. I don't try to chase somebody else's feeling, but I do take in consideration if I'm out in the audience and I heard this, what would it feel like? And so that's like so great. I, you know, to use a silly metaphor or comparison, it's probably like when you're in love, right? When you're in love and you can finally give yourself to somebody, you can finally write the cheesy love letter and buy the flowers. And you know what I mean? Until you're in love and have that partner, you can't express that part of yourself, right? I mean, you can with friends and, and whatever, but uh, there's something very magical about experiencing music you've written with a room full of people. Talk to me about that a little bit. I think that's really interesting. And it's like, you know, in the business product development perspective, I think about co-creating with your with your customer. But 
what's that experience like in terms of writing for your audience, but then also not just creating it for them, but also experiencing it with them? That's pretty unique. Yeah. And that's one of the beauties of rock music that I think if you look at hip hop's like the biggest music in the world, yada, yada, all these things we could say, but so many people want to be rock stars for a lot of reasons. But one of the very cool reasons is because what we do to audiences, like because we're kind of heavy and, you know, people start moving, they start dancing, maybe they do a pit, they're stage diving, you know, they're singing the lyrics. So, you know, you're sharing energy back and forth, you know, and there's only certain times in life when you can do that. Right. And, and it's really, it's really special. It's like, it's like sexual, it's expressive, it's emotional, it's celebratory. It's all these different things. It's, it's anger and release, you know, and I don't know <laughs> what else you could compare it to, you know? Yeah. It's interesting is I think people can maybe relate to speaking in front of a room, but just to perform in front of, I don't know, 50, 60, 70, 80,000 people. And, and what's that like, but not just the rush, but how do you get prepared for that? I mean, that's, you know, you're out there, right? You got to deliver. There's no safety net for you. You got to, you got to go nail it. Yeah. Well, so the head, which like I said, is kind of the leader of that band. And so it, if I mess up big deal, you know, like, you know, we were drinking a ton in those days and probably playing pretty darn sloppy. So it's funny because I remember somebody said, Hey, don't you get stage fright? And I was like, nah, not me. But well, yeah, cause I'm drinking a couple giant I have a Jack and Coke that's this big. And I'm like, I have one drink before I play. It's like, bro, it's like six Jack and Cokes, you know? But then when I got the corn gig and then I'm sober and it's not my band and I'm a hired gun and I didn't write the songs. So they're not like second nature. There's, you know, it wasn't like I'm playing, you know, Paganini or something, but still at the same time, there was a whole other pressure. And we're now we're playing not to, a few thousand, but tens of thousands of people <laughs> with, by the way, a band that was notorious for firing musicians that didn't work out. That was terrifying. You know, luckily by that time had some spiritual practices of meditation and what you learn in the realm of spirituality, which to me is the same thing as like an athlete getting ready for a big game is you got to lean into it, man. You lean into the fear you accept it. You don't try to fight it. You kind of just have to let go and go, well, no matter what, you know, I'm going to live to fight another day. Tom Brady had games where he threw multiple interceptions. It's like, okay, let's go into the next game. But I did have some bad gigs where for three days I'd be like wanting to kill myself to be dramatic. Yeah, but I can imagine, you know, it's like, I don't know, in business or even in sports, there's you don't have this perfection of the recorded song that you have to t try to deliver to you. Maybe it's different in a live experience, but I mean, it could be pretty clear when you actually deviate from the, from the standard of what's on the rap, the album. Yeah. Well, luckily in that kind of a band, you know, it was artsy and kind of, they use a lot of dissonance and stuff. So there was a little leeway to get raw and, and creative in there for sure. It's funny because, I remember what <laughs> Corn's fans are like fanatical. You know, Brian, the guy I was filling in for, is a super important part of that band. And so as I was in there, a lot, of course, a lot of the fans are, you know, watching a YouTube and going, ah, you know, we like this or we don't like that, whatever. And so one night when we were playing, I want to say Rock and Ring, a giant German festival that's like 80,000 people. I had probably the night of my life. I was on fire, just perfect. 
But when they also broadcasted it out to Germany, Korn's performance on like a network TV, which they would do that in the States. But uh, so when they do that, they have a submix truck. So you have one mixer who's mixing it live, our guy we bring for the audience. Then for the TV, which I don't know why, but they have another mixing truck that sends the TV stuff because maybe it's a little different or whatever. And the guy in the TV truck messed up. So he had Monkey, the other guitar player's guitar, almost non-existent. Mine was real loud. And then they had Zach, the keyboard player, who a lot of the times is just a texture underneath. You know, Korn's more of a guitar-driven band. But his textures are kind of haunting and why, right? So anyhow, they had the keyboard way too loud. And so in the chat, I'm like, I just had this show of my life. Yeah, I just crushed it. On the, and it's on TV, you know? And so then I would see in the YouTube chat, this new guy, Wes, sounds horrible, blah, 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 because the fans didn't know they were hearing the keyboard. They assumed the guitar they were hearing was Monkey. And anyhow, it was like a fun moment. Nobody knows that. It's like, you know, they've played a million shows before and since. But I remember this <laughs> Damn it! I was crushing. That was the keyboard, not me. And it wasn't that Zach played poorly. It's just the keyboard doesn't sound like a guitar. So these discerning fans were like, "I don't like the sound of that new guitar player guy." I mean, I can relate to that. Not on, not on that magnitude, of course, but just hearing negative feedback about things. How do you overcome that? I mean, obviously, you, you talk about failure is not an option for you, but I mean, just something you just shrug off, or how do you get through that? I think it's the same as a lot of things, but uh, you know. There's a lot of parallels in other careers and professions and stuff, but like as a musician, you have to have your own internal guidance. You know that not every, some people are like, Hey, no offense. I don't like your band. It's like, okay, I'll take you to the cookie aisle. You're even cookies and you're only going to like two of the cookies there. I'm not offended. This is part of it. And so you got to know how to stay true to you, make yourself happy, hear the chatter and know which stuff to take and which stuff to leave. And usually for me, if I'm unsure of something, let's say I'm like, oh, I don't know, this course is kind of like too wimpy. And somebody goes, I don't know, the course is wimpy. You go, ah, I thought that too. If you're like, this is the dopest course I've ever written. Somebody's like, I don't like the course. You're like, whatever, I feel good about this. And so you have to have your own internal uh, guidance system, if you will. You know what I mean? And then some stuff you maybe don't know. You leave it open like, okay. I'm not sure, but you know, you know, you know, you're going to be judged. You know, some people are going to like it. Some people aren't going to like it. And that's part of it. And I, I know I do have artist friends that can't handle it. They lose it. <clears throat> I'm sure there's instances when there's megastars that just get beat up on stuff and it's just so mean and the vitriol out there is, can be overwhelming. I fortunately haven't had much of that experience. You know, you got to shrug it off, get your support and move on to the next episode. Yeah, but I, I love that though. I mean, just A, what to shrug off, but certain things you're like, hey, I know this is great. I'm not looking for feedback and just, but also you're putting stuff out there that you do want feedback on. I think that's kind of a, a cool and helpful way to look at it. Yeah, it's it's really interesting, but I, I, and I can only speak for myself. I know, I know what I like and I know what I believe is good. And, you know, it's interesting too with my new band also is it's weird because head we talked about selling out clubs and then corn massive and then now i have a new band that people don't care about yet you know we're brand new i mean we do have people who like our music of course but it's not a done deal right and so it's new and and uh 
what I look for in that realm is people who I respect's opinion. Like one of my friends, Chad Gray, who sings for Mudvayne and uh, Hell Yeah, he was like, dude, I really love what you're doing. I was like, okay, if you love it, it's not in your genre. It's kind of out of the box. I respect your opinion. That's something I'm going to hold on to. You know what I mean? So I think there's moments in time where it's it, it's important. And then to make a point is like sometimes there's people, I was thinking of this time when this guy was telling me what a great singer he was because he sang at backyard parties and everybody told him he was great. And I was like, yeah, that's your drunk girlfriends who don't know anything about music because you're not great, dude. You know what I mean? Like, so... <laughs> You, you got to know, I know there's going to be an element of people where I could have the wor- worst show ever and they're going to be like, you're the best guitar ever. And it's like, I know not to buy into that because I, I know there's, you know what I mean? I just, I've, there's some people that don't know when they suck. <laughs> I don't know what to say about that part. Oh yeah. Knowing what to take to heart and what not to take to heart. So I wrote something this week. I was just, cause I was laughing with my kids and so I wrote a book, The Savage Leader, and this one review said, this book is anything but savage. And my kids are just, they're 9 and 11, just dying, laughing, you know, giggling and just, dad got roasted, you know? So it's like, yes, take certain things for the grain of salt, for sure. Well, and especially in web world. What we know in web world is it's like these people hiding behind computers who are grumpy, who just want to fucking throw daggers at people. And it's like, who cares, you know? I'd love to switch gears a little bit. I, I know, obviously, um, you know, there's been some big transformational moments in your life, but I just would just be curious to hear what was it that ultimately led you to start Rock to Recovery? Yeah, it's cool because so many of the uh, – thanks for asking. There's so many of these podcasts or interviews I do, it's they're more recovery-based, but like I got some crazy stories on a more like transformational, manifesting, making shit happen. You know. I want to share, this isn't to answer your question, but I want to share a story in here that I think is good. Is uh, Corn offered me the gig to come play with them. And uh, months went by and I wasn't getting the gig. The guitar player wanted me in. The singer was like, ah, I'm okay with the guy we got. So internally, they hadn't made a, de- a firm decision. And meanwhile, I knew the get- uh, monkey had said, hey, I want you to come play for us. Meanwhile, they're leaving on a tour for a month and they come back, leaving on another month tour, another two month tour. I'm like, I got to get this gig. And, uh, it kind of will all tie in. I thought of what some of my favorite, most inspirational people did. And what they all did when I analyzed the lives and stories of people who I admired, they all had some raw talent. They had a lucky moment, like an opportunity that dropped in their lap. And when that did, they went, and I call, I don't have a better phrase for it. They blew it up, meaning like they went above and beyond. So I took the last of my money and, saw, and flew out to a corn show where I knew was in a small market so they wouldn't have a bunch of press there. Handed them a CD of me playing every song in their live set, knowing that nobody listens to CDs at that time. And this is 10 years ago. It, the hardest thing to do is get a band to listen to a CD, <laughs> ironically enough. And I was walking up and I knew I had to talk to Jonathan, the singer. And I went to Jonathan's tour bus and I said, hey, can you, to his assistant, can you get Jonathan out here? He walked away and came back. He goes, ah, Jonathan's busy. I was like, ah, okay. And by this time, I was at the end of my little tour with them. Like I was going to a few shows. I was going to go home, no money. I didn't get the meeting with Jonathan. I was walking away. And I remembered uh, this saying I heard, your life will be determined by how many uncomfortable conversations you're willing to have. 
swear to God, so cheesy, like out of a movie. Like if this is in the movie, you'd be like, oh, but I swear to God, I literally stopped and turned around and said, no, I need you to go get Jonathan right now. I came out here to meet with him. I recorded all these songs. I want to talk to Jonathan. Jonathan came out. He's like, what's up, dude? (laughs) I was like, dude, I recorded all these songs. You did? I didn't know that. I go, yeah, I handed them out to your guy. I'm here. I know every song. Put me in the game, coach. I am ready to go. And he's like, okay, man. Okay, let me talk to Monkey and see what's up. And like, if I didn't get that corn gig, Rock to Recovery would have never happened because that dipped me in a little of that glitter. So when I went to pitch Rock to Recovery, if I'd said I was in some band named Head PE, they'd be like, eh. But when I now had that kind of like high level success, when I said, hey, you know, I used to play in this band Corn and I have this idea, well, oh, what Corn? Yeah, I've heard of Corn. It opened up some, some ears. Uh, but to think that I came this close, and that story is a lot bigger. I just gave you one of the little moments that was key. And so when the corn gig was going away and Brian Head, is his nickname, was coming back to the band, I was terrified. I barely graduated high school, no career, no degree, nothing, just been a musician. I went back to some spiritual teachings, uh, philosophies I had been taught in the 12-step program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, you know, the 12 steps are designed for living that takes spiritual concepts from, you know, the world for many, many years. And it talks about, we could pray for ourselves if others are to be helped. So when the Corgi was going away, I wanted to slip, I started wanting to slip into like self-pity. Like I just had this incredible gig. I'm a rock star. Now I'm going to be whatever, 40 something years old, out of work. And just like, what am I going to do? friggin' gas station. I mean, I'm clueless. And so I said, okay, wait a second. God didn't send me here or the universe. I'm not sent here to have this miserable life. And it's certainly been challenging so far, aside from the corn gig, which was a great payoff for my recovery efforts. It's like, if I'm supposed to be a musician, I'm supposed to be sober. How do I help people and make a living? And that's when the idea of rock to recovery came to me. And it was just like, I just want to make a little bit of money this is going to be a nonprofit and help people and pay my bills. And so uh, I started pitching the idea for Rock Recovery based on my experience in rehab. I went to a rehab to get over meth and heroin and alcohol addiction. And in rehab, there was like 22 dudes. And, you know, there's all sorts of weird personality energies in there. You're full of shame. I'm in rehab, right? So I'm full of shame and guilt and I feel like a loser and I'm self-loathing and I'm lost. What am I going to do in my life? What's I going to do in my career? I've got repos and bad credit. And so we're all bringing that energy in there. But I noticed that when I would twang my guitar, I could transform the energy of the room. So that was my endeavor to try to bring music into treatment. And again, kind of like back to the cookies idea, I had tried to do a business before that which was a kind of a charitable music-based business, total different model I won't bore you with. But we spent so long designing the marketing materials and the numbers and the docs and the business plan, we never tested our cookies. So I had already learned that. I've spent six or eight months on that previous thing that went nowhere. So with this one, I just made the shittiest PDF ever and I just pitched and pitched and pitched and pitched. For eight months, I pitched it. And I would go, hey, I have this idea. I want to bring music and write songs with people in treatment. They go, wow, that sounds cool. Oh, cool. You want to hire me? No. Okay. And I went on and on and on until it was down to the last little lead I had. It was an old friend I knew. And I was like, should I call Paul? Nah, I won't call Paul. I was like, well, if I don't call Paul, I'm really done. So let me call Paul Moen. 
old friend of mine from the party days who had been sober for a long time. He owned a treatment center and I pitched him on my idea and he, he gave me a chance. I didn't know what I was going to do. I just knew I was going to bring guitars and music into treatment and try. I had a basic idea. I want to write songs with people. My brother, who's like a genius entrepreneur and a musician, he's like, wait, wait, you're going to go in with a bunch of people who haven't played music and try to write songs? And I was like, oh my God, you're right. It's a horrible idea. Shit, shit. So then what I got into, I, I, they go, we want you to start like next week. And I was like, oh, fuck, oh, fuck, oh, fuck. So I go, I need two weeks. You got to give me a couple of weeks. I didn't tell them why. I just need two weeks. And so then I went and I saw that famous TED Talk about Apple computers and the why. I don't know if you've seen that, but it's super famous. Basically, the concept being like traditionally prior to Apple, people were like, you know, hey, you want a computer? Buy my computer. It's $5.99. Apple was more like, hey, you want to have your photos and your email and your stuff and all integrated? You want that experience? This is how you get it, right? So that helped me. So I had to, I went into that treatment center with a bunch of dudes, you know, junkies and alcoholics, and I just told them why I was there. You're going to be in treatment. We love music. Don't you think there should be music in treatment? Yes. I go, okay, cool. I'm not even sure what's going to happen right now, but we're, we together are going to do this idea I have and let's try and be amazing. In the first session, it was almost a shit show. I was terrified. It was almost like, cause you know, everybody, it sounds horrible what we're doing. And then right at the end, it came together and I was like, holy fuck, that was pretty amazing. I won't tell exactly what I do cause it's my trade secrets, but it was just getting out there and getting people to try the cookies, you know? And then through the years, now we're 10 years deep. Our cookies are tasting pretty friggin' good. Yeah. So cool. I mean, it's just, going out there and trying something that's scary as all heck for you to do. And yeah, I love that. Just not love because I can imagine how painful it was in the moment, but it feels like it's all falling apart and you find that moment of genius and you bring it home at the end. You realize you've got magic. Yeah. There was one thing I did in that session. It was going horribly. And again, I'm not going to share it because it is my little trade secret, but it was like, I had this little backup thing I did. And then right when it was going, it sounded horrible. I, I was like, Oh my God, Maybe I'll try this. And then all of a sudden it started coalescing. And and to be honest, every rock to recovery session I did was like that, where it would gave me horrible anxiety beforehand. If the session's two hours long, it's like an hour of hell and nerves and being terrified, terrified, anxiety. This is going to suck. And then right at the end, it comes together to the point where we'd be like, we did it kind of like a team who just came back from, you know, a 20 point deficit in the fourth quarter where you're just depressed. And then all of a sudden you're the victors and you're like, wow, we did it. Yeah. And there was a lot of that. And I love talking about this stuff again in the business parallels. This is, you know, is how these stories go. So talk to me about some of the, like the, the impact on people. I mean, you talk about people, you know, I know from, obviously I knew you through Christian Gibbs, but in terms of just the impact on people with uh, you know, mental health issues, obviously uh, addiction issues. Like what's been some of the, maybe even share a story of someone who's gone through your program and just the benefits that they gained from it. Yeah. So I came in just thinking music's cool, right? It makes you feel good. Why don't we use more music? Very simple. Like what's the need? There needs to be more music in the world helping people. Then when I got in there, one of the fortunate episodes I always refer to is, was very, very early on. It was a huge gift from the universe. This guy came into the session 
a little bit late. We already kind of started writing the song a little bit. And he was a junkie who was detoxing from heroin. And the heroin detox is like having a horrible, horrible flu, except you can't sleep. You certainly can't eat. A lot of people are defecating or they're incontinent or whatever themselves. And you're suicidal. It's just like you're crawling out of your skin. The guy comes in and he's like, oh, I'm probably going to die. I'm a fucking junkie. And I'm, you know, he just was blah, 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 ranting. And I was like, so, and, you know, part of me in the back of my head's like, yeah, how's this going to help a guy like this? But okay, let me just, here's what we're doing. We're writing a song. And the great thing was I could connect with him on that level of like, I've been where you're at. All I had left is a little pink shaker. It looks like a pink egg. And I was like, look, we're writing a song. It's about like overcoming actually heroin addiction. That day was our topic. And I show him how to shake it. The chorus, you know, the verse goes five times. We stop and then we're going to do this. I got him to buy into the process. And about midway through, he's like, wait, wait, wait. So the, you know, the verse goes four times, then we stop. And then I go, okay, he's getting into this. By the time we're done, this guy who is, I get chills on this too. This guy who is physically sick, also mentally like didn't want to live was like, that was amazing. Are you going to be here next week? Oh my God. Cool. And I was like, okay, wait, wait, wait. I just watched music transform this guy's physical ailments and in clinical sense, help him with measures of wellness. That's what they want to know. So he had hope because he was excited about next week. He had, you know, he was looking forward to the future a little bit more than before. So that was a huge like moment for me, kind of like a gift from the universe to say like, this is more powerful than you imagine, my friend. You know, what we know, what I've learned since clinically is that Music, when we listen to it, engages half our brain. But when we play music at any level, you don't have to be Jimi Hendrix, it lights up our whole brain. And it's very unique in that way. And it releases dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, and endorphins, which I just learned this trick from my friend, D-O-S-E, dose. It gives you a dose of naturally occurring chemicals that help you feel high, feel good. And so this is why it helps so well. And oxytocin helps you feel connected too. So most people who are depressed or addicts or struggling, they feel so isolated and alone. So we're giving them a very natural dose of natural brain chemistry without drugs. That's fantastic. So inspiring too. And I'm curious, you know, you, you're a career musician, you have this just you see this opportunity to transform people with music. You see the experience firsthand. Like, what makes you want to start a business out of it at that point? And how do you go about doing that? Well, I was desperate. I had nothing, you know, I had nothing else to do. So, there's another thing they say in the AA Big Book, which is we do this stuff out of necessity rather than virtue, meaning, you know, while we're doing good things, trying to help other alcoholics, and it seems virtuous and altruistic, we're really doing this truly out of necessity to save our own lives. And so that's what it was. I was desperate for a job. And while, you know, in the realm of interviews and the love and accolades I've been so blessed to get from people like, oh, you're a good guy out there helping. It's like, well, because I was about to be homeless and jobless and I had no other choice, you know. So then once I had it working and I went back to my super smart entrepreneurial brother and showed him I had a couple grand in receivables, he said, cool. And I was like, wow, he doesn't seem very impressive. He goes, is it scalable? And I was like, is it scalable? Yeah. Who could I teach how to do what I'm doing? And of course, 
I think it happens so often in our lives where our brain loves to tell us all the reasons why it's not, this won't work. And it's coming, it just tells us all the problems because that's what the brain does. It wants to tell you about your problems. I was like, wait a second. And, and I really tapped in. I was like, I could probably find other sober musicians like me who need a career, who need income, who love to help people. And how many musicians out there wish they could make money doing music? That actually is another need in the marketplace, if you will, in society, in community. And so I realized, holy shit, a couple of my best friends are perfect for this job. And I started showing them my techniques. Then it just went from there, man. People were loving the cookies. That's my ongoing metaphor, the cookies. <laughs> <laughs> the ongoing, the cookies. I love that. I love that. So Wes, tell me about some of the work that, that Rock to Recovery is doing with military veterans. Yeah, it's really cool. So we started as a nonprofit. And as we got a little bit of traction with success, I was developing a board of directors of some amazing people and they were like, we should work with veterans. It's like, oh yeah. And I remembered on tour being with Jonathan Davis of Corn, he would go visit Air Force bases around the world and visit wounded veterans. He's very passionate about it. And he used to speak from the stage about it, like how, you know, he had a rock concert, 50,000 people. And he'd be like, let's hear it for our veterans who, you know, put their lives on the line to keep us free so we can check our Instagram, you know. And so I remembered meeting a, a woman from the Air Force and I reached out to her and, and they were just starting something they called the resiliency program because we all know about how many suicides happen with, in the military, especially with wounded warriors. So they're starting a program where they bring them in for adaptive sports games, wheelchair basketball and some job placement, all sorts of stuff to reintegrate them in, into a community. And they, at, they said, you called it the right time want to come do rock to recovery at some of our uh, wounded warrior games, et cetera. And we're like, yeah. And of course I got terrified because I'm like, I was just a tweaker guitar player. How do I connect to these people who are friggin' heroes watching their friends get blown up and hand-to-hand combat and all sorts of stuff. But I found out that when you're in the dark spot, the dark spot's the dark spot. It feels very similar for everybody. And also the way out of the dark spot has a lot of the same elements of, you know, expression and connection and love and art and music. So, uh, yeah, we got a contract with the department of defense. I think we're in our sixth or seventh year now and they fly us around the country and even around the world to write songs with wounded veterans. And it's uh, air force wounded warrior, the AFW two. And it's been, it's my favorite gig of all time, especially Going back to being a guy in a rehab lost with his life, you know, and it actually won me a uh, ride in an F-16 fighter jet where I got to fly it. Yeah, it's cool. It's been an amazing journey. Well, hey, Wes, I uh, appreciate your time today. So inspiring and, and sharing insights on so many different levels from your life. Where can people go to find more about you and connect with Rock to Recovery? Well, that's a great question. And I'm glad you asked. First of all, we're very easy to find. Rock to Recovery everywhere on all the social medias, you know, Instagram, Facebook, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Additionally, on Amazon, there is this book, Rock to Recovery, Music as a Catalyst for Human Transformation. These are 18 vignettes of people who've had incredible transformations and our music program was one of the elements of it. It's really a book of hope. It ties in my a bit of my story and uh, 
some amazing stories of veterans and sex trafficked women and, you know, addicts and alcoholics, all sorts of people in here. So it's a cool book. And this is on this Rock to Recovery is on Amazon.com. We have a wonderful website, Rock to Recovery. You can find us. We're not that hard. To, we're not that hard to find. And of course, I'm Wes Gear, and I'm mainly on Instagram. I don't have time for Facebook. 